Over 30 years in any business is impressive, but in the world of songwriting, it's especially notable, even more so when that writer is still very much at the top of their game. I'm Tom Maley, and this is Write You a Song. Tommy Lee James was the big shot songwriter. Our last guest, Ross Copperman, talked about. Ross grew up in the same town as Tommy Lee, Roanoke, Virginia, and drew inspiration from Tommy Lee's success as Ross embarked on his own music career. In fact, Ross was nice enough to help set up this month's interview. But where Ross's songwriting career has been largely over the last eight or nine years, Tommy Lee's got started back in the late 1980s. And since then, he's written big hits for the likes of Brooks and Dunn, Reba, Tim McGraw, and One Direction? Yeah, he's not only consistent, he's versatile. Not at all just staying in a country music lane. Now, before we start, let me just thank you for downloading this month's episode. If you're a subscriber, thank you even more. If you get a chance, leave a review. If you're new to the podcast, go back through the archives and take a listen to some of the other episodes. We've got the biggest names in country music songwriting over the last 30, 35 years, past, present, and future. It's all covered. And if you have friends who are songwriting or creative process fans, please share it. There's literally something to learn each and every episode, including this one. So kick back and get set for a masterclass in not just achieving, but sustaining creative success. On this month's Write You a Song. Tommy Lee James, welcome to Write You a Song. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Tom. Thanks very much. Yeah, I usually start these interviews asking people you know, where, where they got started, what, what inspired them. But I'm just going to like go right for the meat of the conversation off the bat because I've <laughs> noticed like in a lot of your songs, not all of them, but a lot of them, they're really sad. Like you write some great sad country songs. What happened to you? Are you damaged in some way? Man, I'm so depressed, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I am not. Um, you know, I uh, I'm a I would say a pretty happy, well-adjusted person for a songwriter. Look for a songwriter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, I I have always been drawn to uh, my songs are kind of emotional, and I'm drawn to that love heartbreak, um, but also you know triumphing over that too. Um, that's kind of what interests me, or more affairs of the heart, you know, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, emotional kind of stuff. I like it, and I, I think that you know that kind of stuff is also tied into melody. I'm really drawn to melody, mm-hmm. and I think that, you know, that's the beauty of, of being a songwriter and not like a poet is you can write like a lyric and it's attached to a melody. And then that melody is also attached to a performance. Right. Um, so you, you have three layers that can marry each, marry to each other really well. And, um, you know, it becomes one kind of thing, you know. And I'm not a musician by any stretch. Isn't there also something? It seems like a lot of your songs are are like in a certain key. Like I'm I'm going back to like Spinal Tap, and you know when he's writing "Lick My Love Pump." <laughs> um, <laughs> it's pretty. Yeah, I like it. Just been fooling about with it for a few months now. Very delicate. It's a, it's a bit of a departure from the kind of thing you normally play. Yeah, well, it's part of a. Uh... A trilogy, really, a musical trilogy that I'm doing in D minor, which I always find is really the saddest of all keys, really. I don't know why, but it makes people weep instantly to play a... It's a horn part. It's very pretty. 
What do you call this? Well, this piece is called uh, Lick My Love Pump. Is that something that I'm misinterpreting, or, or is there something to that? I don't know if they're in the same key necessarily, because I think the key is usually adjusted for the stinger or whatever. Okay. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I probably, you know, I write on guitar and piano, um, and, you know, I think I probably gravitate to certain um, keys, you know. Um, you know, I... I'm I'm a, I'm a, I was a music major in college. I can play in different keys, but uh, but that uh, doesn't necessarily mean I always do it. You know, it's kind of we're creatures of habit sometimes. Right. Um, but especially on guitar, I feel like there's some you know certain keys that ring better with open strings and that kind of thing. I'm not a great guitar player. I'm more of a strummer. <laughs> you know. Right. Right. So it, it it probably is more in the, in the melody, and I guess maybe they're, they're just like uh, I'll give you a great example. It was a song that was a big hit at a time from a promising young lady, and I think she just she didn't want to be a star, and she just kind of retired from the business. But what I really meant to say from uh, right. C- Cindy Thompson, the melody on that song is I mean the the lyrics are heart wrenching, but the melody on it is just beautiful. They just go hand in hand. Thanks so much. Yeah, I wrote that with with Cindy and uh, Chris Waters. And, you know, I was, at that time, by that point, I was writing for Barbara Orbison. And I, I was a huge Roy Orbison fan. Um, and I remember on that melody, we kept trying to stair-step it up, like where it would have a drama thing. I, you know, like in the chorus. Mm-hmm. It starts kind of low, and then it kind of kind of builds. Um, but, but thanks, yeah, I, I love that melody. It took me by surprise you standing there close enough to touch breathing the same air you asked me how I've been I guess that's when I smiled and said just fine oh but baby I was lying what I really meant to say isn't I How did you end up working with Barbara Orbison? Uh, well, uh, I moved to Nashville actually to be an artist. I had a record deal for, briefly for about a year and a half on RCA. Nothing really ever came out, but it was a little bit Roy Orbison inspired, you know, a um, little bit rockabilly. Um, it kind of sounded, remember the Mavericks? Mm-hmm. It kind of sounded a little bit like that. This was probably 93. And um, I was on the road with Reba McIntyre, and uh, her husband Norval at the her husband at the time Norval was managing me, and um, I was really, you know, because I like all, you know, I'm I'm really kind of like hard to define like the way I sing or whatever. So I decided this is a really bad idea, by the way, but I just decided to to pick a style and go with it. 
And one thing I always loved, which is the wrong thing to do. It's not a good, a good idea for young artists. Um, but, uh, cause this was a total failed attempt to, um, but I just, you know, I so saw, I went to this Roy Orbison thing kind of, and, um, it, uh, the thing about it is there's only one Roy and you try to sing about five songs like that in a row. I was a, I was a pretty good singer at the time and had a big range, but you know, it was exhausting, you know, when you yeah. try to put all those songs together for a showcase for an, for a, for a label, mm-hmm. you're like, Oh, wow. Uh, I see why there was only one Roy Orbison. Oh, hey, it's Tom here. I don't cut in like this on my podcast very often, but I just want to let you know that what you're about to hear is not Roy Orbison. It's Tommy Lee James. Check this voice out. We laid in bed for hours, reaching for another way. Afraid that we were living another time, another day. I tried to hide my feelings, but you made their presence known. And between the fear and loneliness, I want you back. caliber of writers and co-writers uh, because I had a deal and um, you know when my when um, my deal didn't work out um, I was secretly relieved because I don't think I really was ever meant to be an artist or wanted to be and I realized I was just in love with songwriting and that's kind of what put me on that path is I had a better um, you know stable of co-writers and um I just kind of went for it from that point as a songwriter only. So you say you were relieved when the, it didn't work I was. Huh. Well, because, you know, I'm like part big ham and also part shy. You know, I mean, this has been going on for years. You know, like when I was a little kid, I used to, you know, I, I used to knock on doors and ask if I could play a song. When I was like five and six years old, I used <laughs> to play the ukulele. That's awesome. And I would go around the neighborhood and knock on doors and ask if I could play. But somewhere along the line, I really kind of got like, I don't know, maybe too self-conscious or whatever. But, you know, I, I would even play like songwriter shows at the Bluebird in Nashville. And, you know, on the way there, I'm like, why did I agree to do this? But on the way home, I'm going, that's the best night I've ever had. Right. You know, so I was super conflicted. <laughs> <laughs> so when did you, uh, going back to what I usually start the show with um when did you realize that music was something you wanted to do i think i read where you wrote your first like real song when you were 13 or something like that yeah i'm sure it was pretty bad um i started writing songs can you know kind of like seventh eighth grade but man i i grew up in like southwestern virginia a town called roanoke and um i remember you know this we're talking like Okay, say when I was six or seven years old, there was a show on TV, um, and it was a bluegrass show called the Red Smiley Show. And so 
I used to study like how he would play the guitar, how he would like um, back away from the microphone when somebody else would sing and all this. And actually, like I played at an assembly when I in second grade playing the ukulele, and I did all the red smiley moves <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> yeah, copied red smiley, but at the same time, I, you know, I'd just seen the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Mm. And so that, you know, that is, it's such a huge cliche because there's so many people my age that bought an electric guitar or a guitar because of seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan and the whole British invasion thing. So, you know, my dad's family used to have family reunions and play bluegrass over, they used to call it going over into the country, um, which was about 45 minutes away. And, um, you know, we would do that a couple of times a year. But then I, I was just like, you know, crazy about the Beatles and this whole thing. And I guess when I was about 13, I got in, got into a band, my first band with a couple schoolmates. And, um, you know, I really never looked back from that. That was, I always wanted to be a, you know, be in a band. And, um, you know, it was in a band, <laughs> you know, for, for years and years. And actually until I moved to Nashville. And um, I was thinking about this the other day. I feel like I look at my co-writers a lot as bandmates. Hmm. You know what I mean? It's kind of the yeah. same thing. You know, you kind of interact with them and, you know, you're making stuff up together. And um, uh, so I think, you know, my, the, my co-writers kind of replace my bandmates. It's always been kind of a camaraderie thing that I just love about being a songwriter. That's a really right. interesting take. I hadn't thought of that before. But when you, yeah, when you get into a room with those people, they are in that moment. They're your bandmates. Yeah, I, I love collaboration. I mean, I've I've written some things by myself and uh, and whatever, but I, I there's something I love about bouncing stuff off of people. You know, most of the time there's a lot of laughter. You know, there's stories, and um, you know, I mean, I think, and also think, you know, when you're when you're writing with people, you genuinely like and love um i think that's where the best song and you're having a good time i think that's where the best songs usually come not to say it's not hard work but um right you know i think good things come from that a lot of times when you like it it doesn't necessarily feel like hard work mm -hmm. so exactly and that's why you know i think i've been doing it for so many years um is i you know you know it's great to have cuts and and, and songs on the hear your song on the radio and all that but and I love all that, but also I love the process. And there's nothing that anybody can take away from that feeling you have of, I know I did good work today. Mm -hmm. You know, you're driving home and you go, I had a great day. I feel like I wrote a song I'm proud of. To me, that's what I, I was doing, you know, all the, for all those years. Now, how, how long have you been in the business one way or the other? You said you arrived and you, you went out on tour with Reba in 93, but how, how long had you been in Nashville before that? Yeah, I moved. I moved to Nashville in '87. Okay, and uh, I just I didn't know a soul. Started playing open mic nights, um, and um, you know, just uh, my songs were. I remember my wife and I went to the Bluebird after the after the first week because we didn't do a whole lot of research about it. We just, you know, you're young and whatever. And we just we just moved to Nashville because I was too scared to move to Los Angeles and. <laughs> I, there was some country, <laughs> there was some country music that I, I liked at the time. I really liked at the time, 
Um, you know, because uh, there's some good stuff. Like, I, I really like Steve Earle and Roseanne Cash and uh, Rodney Crowell, Dwight Yoakam. And, um, I mean, there's just some really good music around that period and um, that I loved. And we just like we're moving to Nashville because I was I'd been I'd had a four track recorder. I was living in D.C. at the time, um, outside of D.C. and um, uh, you know sending off tapes, but you know getting like form letters back and stuff like that. And everybody's like, you know, you're going to have to move there if you want to if you want to do something, which I think is was generally true then and probably still is now. And uh, didn't know a soul and just moved there. Started playing open mic nights and. But the first the first week we were there, my wife and I went to the Bluebird, and you know, because I thought I was pretty good, you know, to have the confidence to move to Nashville, you know, you, you got to think you're pretty good. Mm-hmm. And I think I saw like that night Don Schwitz and Mike Reed were playing, and somebody else, and like they were so good, and their songs were so amazing, and you could have heard a pin drop in the room. You know, we left. I left there, and I was kind of shell shocked, and like, what have we done? (laughs) (laughs) A night like that can go one of two ways: it can fire you up, or it can make you tuck your tail between your legs. Yeah, I think it did both. You know, Um, and you know, it was, but it was definitely humbling for sure. But did Um, that also show you? Did did that that show you where the bar was, though? Well, yeah, yeah, and. it took me a long time to, you know, get good. I wrote a lot of mediocre and bad songs there. And I also think when I got to Nashville, I tried to, I feel like I lost myself a little bit. You know, I feel like I didn't, you know, it's easy that, you know, all of a sudden you're trying to just start pleasing people. And I feel like I, I wasn't doing necessarily what I did best. And maybe I was trying to be too, I'm using air quotes, but like too country. Hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, um, and you know, you see somebody do something like, and you go, well, I can do that. So you copy them kind of not, not the song verbatim, but just like that style or whatever, but that's what he does best, you know, not necessarily what I do best. And, um, I think it takes a, takes a while to kind of learn that and, and get your footing and your bearing. And so, yeah, it was, you know, it took me, I got a publishing deal after a couple of years with Reba McIntyre's publishing company. Uh, she was starting a company called Starstruck at the time, and um, you know it was. I, I think it was like seventy-five dollars a week. By this time, I'm already twenty-nine. So, oh wow, at twenty-nine. I'm making seventy-five dollars a week, <laughs> and like I was happy. I was so happy just to have my foot in, like the door of the legitimate music business. You know, where there was a publisher, and they were actually sending my songs to artists and. And it just it was just baby steps for me all the way. From there, at what point during that period of time did you get your first cut? I think it was with Conway Twitty, who maybe you didn't grow up listening to him, but dude's a legend. Was a legend then, is a legend now. Oh, and yeah. the song that you did for him, I Don't Love You, I just went back and listened to it before I started the interview. Um, for that time, it's super contemporary. I mean, I was kind of expecting to be, you know, like really almost like mid-70s Conway, but... For its time, it, I mean, it it still holds up. It's a good song. Yeah, thank you. I was I was actually proud of that song, and and just you know, of course, over the moon, you know, about getting a, a cut on a major artist and a legend. I'd I'd actually seen Conway and Roanoke at an amusement park, and it was it was amazing because I used to there was some, I love that, you know. I mean, I knew I knew country music, you know. I mean, you know, because I well, I mean, 
some people don't consider this country, but I love Glen Campbell. And um, I had a Buck Owens songbook. I was, you know, I watched Hee Haw, you know, with my parents, you know. And so, like, I really loved, like, Tiger by the Tail and Act Naturally and all those songs. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, to get a Conway cut was just, oh, my gosh. He ended up passing away after that, you know, a few months after that, which was so sad. I think he he might have passed away before the album came out. But, you know, that was kind of the beginning. Um, and then, you know, I, I don't know if I 100% knew exactly what I was doing then, but... Um, you know, I was just trying really hard and going to work every day and trying to write a song and, you know. Pray before I close my eyes Please don't be in my dreams again tonight I don't love you There's no place in your life for me So just get out of mind and let I don't love you I don't stare at your photograph Wishing I could get you About that time, I think it's when I went on the road with Reba. And then I ended up with the same person, Liz Hingber, who I wrote um, the Conway song with. I wrote um, my first uh, Reba cut, which ended up being the number one song for her called, called And Still. He said, how have you been? It's great to see you again. You're really a for sore eyes. I said I can't come back Oh, I'm doing fine We talked as the people rushed by We laughed about old times And all we went through That's when he hugged me And said I've missed you So I was on the road with Reba for a while, and I had my record deal on RCA. So things were starting to, like, come together. Um, and the record deal didn't happen. And I quit I quit Reba's band because I thought that uh, the plan was for me to open up for Reba the next year. Uh, you know, like, not on the middle slot, but on the opening slot. Mm-hmm. And um, then that all kind of fell through, and... Um, I took a year off, and then Ronnie Dunn and Kix Brooks called me. They'd been opening up for Reba that year, and they said they needed a, an acoustic guitar player and singer in the band and asked me if I would come out for a year and play with them while I was still working on my artist stuff. And so, uh, and they said that uh, 
in January, the person there were going to Hawaii for two weeks, and I said, "Sign me up." <laughs> I'm also seeing where you've written some some pretty big songs with Terry McBride. Bam! That's where that that had to be where you yeah. and Terry first met up. It is. I actually was in the band before Terry, but that's kind of how we got together um, through that whole whole thing. And we wrote um, "If You See Him, If You See Her" with Jennifer Kimball, mm-hmm. which ended up being a huge song because it was a on both of their albums and uh, yeah that was that was a good one if you see him telling my wish him well how am I doing well sometimes it's hard to tell I still called are you with me which became a like a huge worldwide dance song and they you know it by this guy named ross frequencies yeah he, and, uh, he, he was on uh the, the 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 podcast about i don't know five or six episodes ago and he was talking about oh, wow. that and I'd, I'd never heard that story and so i went and found the song and it's like oh my god you know it it is a hundred percent edm but that melody is still there and it's just it's a really cool reimagining of what was already a really cool song by for Easton Corbin. Yeah. Yeah. It, that was, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, if you do, I guess if you do it long enough, you just get lucky every now <laughs> and then, but you know, I, I, I'll take it. I'll take it. That was, that was a good one. I want to dance by water underneath the Mexican sky. Drink some margaritas by swinging blue lights. Listen to the mariachi play at midnight. Are you with me? Are you with me? Crazy Love me, baby 
You know, I'm, I'm definitely a product of Music Row, and um, but I also feel like I'm, I'm not just a country songwriter. I think of myself as a songwriter because I grew up with other types of music, and I think to write other kinds of music, you have to respect other types of music. You can't just dabble at it. Um, uh, and, you know, I feel like you, re- you really have to embrace it, and it, it's it takes a while sometimes to kind of to kind of get it and see where people are coming from, but it's all hard in, in its own way, you know. One of the things that that impresses me about you is, um, and I think you're maybe just a couple years older than me, but you well know because I certainly know that as you get older, you know, you kind of want to slam the door on things, and you're not. You are still you're still so very open minded to to different styles of music, and that that keeps you healthy. It keeps you young. It keeps you relevant. And when you talk about thinking of yourself as a strong songwriter, not necessarily just a country songwriter, you will point out that you've had some great songs in the pop world. Uh, you wrote a couple of songs for uh, for One Direction, for example. Yeah, I mean, I, I do, and I appreciate you saying that because I I've seen a lot of my contemporaries, you know, kind of, you know, not be as successful, and maybe they didn't want to be, or just but you have to be open to change and um you know just because you did it one way you know 20 years ago it's it's just it's a different game now and you have to be open to it if you want if you want to do if you don't want to do that fine but you know people are going to leave you behind if you don't want to change and, and embrace it and you know there's so many talented there were so many talented people when i got to town i mean i was just i was in awe and you know so much respect, and I still am. But there's so many young, talented people now that are just killing it. I mean, uh, and uh, you know, I learned something from even the young writers I, I work with. And uh, you know, sometimes they may not know exactly how to pull a song together, mm-hmm. but they might also bring something really relevant to the table that I don't, like a a, a youthful energy or a um, a turn of a phrase that, you know, they might say it a little differently than me or whatever. So, you know, it always pays to be open and, and listen to your, your co-writer. And I like that youthful energy and, um, um, it's fun. I still have fun doing it. One question I wanted to ask you, you, you wrote, uh, they don't know about us and, and loved you first for, for one direction. And I asked the young lady that co-hosts with, with us, she's 30. Cause I'm, believe it or not, I haven't, listen to much One Direction. But I say, do you know these songs? She goes, God, God, yeah, they're great. So I listen to them, and yeah, they're great. And really, like, lyrically, I, I watched the lyric videos. Lyrically, you know, structurally, they're very similar to country songs. They could be country songs done by somebody else. And were those songs written for them, or were those songs, like a lot of songs are, uh, just you did them, and then you put them out there, and then they get shopped around? Yeah, those songs were written... Um specifically for One Direction. Okay. Um, I remember one of my, my co-writer, uh, Tebe, um, we wrote the um, the other two writers, they were European guys, and they sent us a track that kind of had that rough melody on it. And then we put kind of put lyrics to it, sent it back, and um, they liked it. We did a vocal and then sent it back. 
And then I think I believe they sent it to Simon Cowell, you know, who was the I guess the A and R guy at the time. Mm-hmm. And they wanted another part on They Don't Know About Us. You know, and it kept going back and forth for a while. We we did I think we did three or four rewrites till everybody was happy on that. People say we shouldn't be together. We're too young to know about forever. But I say they don't know what they're talk, talk, talking about. Cause this love is only getting stronger. So I don't want to wait any longer. I just want to tell the world that you're mine, girl. Oh, they don't know about the things we And then, but the other song was just one of those quick rights and I was in LA and uh, it was just you know a couple hours and it was what it was and but it got on got on the record so Bopper hit. <laughs> my ki- my kids love it. <laughs> so does that make you cooler <laughs> to them? I don't think I'm still the dad. I don't, I right. don't think that'll ever nothing will ever make me cooler. <laughs> and you've also written uh, for Celine Dion and it was a song called uh, "Didn't Know Love." But th- that's another pattern that that I sense from you. Uh, not only do you write a lot of kind of melancholy songs, but you also write songs for big vocalists, people who can really sing. Reba, Ronnie Dunn, Richie McDonald, Celine Dion. I mean, these people can belt it out. Is that coincidence or I don't know? I think it's probably coincidence. Um, Like with the Celine thing, I was writing with Jesse Alexander. I didn't know love, not even close. This is more beautiful and frightening than I've ever known. It's making me
Jesse and I actually went to London together on a writing trip, and we wrote with this guy, this really famous writer, um, English guy named Egg White, and uh, he's a big producer, and uh, he he did some early Adele stuff, and we wrote with him one day, and it was, you know, down in his basement studio, and I, th- I think what it is, like, possibly with, with the vocalist, uh, big vocalist, is maybe because, I mean, Jesse has a really wide range, and, I mean, I, I, I used to, too, um, and I think um, maybe we just write bigger melodies, um, and that might be why, mm. but, you know, if I'm sitting down with Richie McDonald or Ronnie um, Dunn, I, I'm going to try to um, write something that shows off their voice because I think I think that's part of it. You know, it's like, you know, you want you want them to shine too, and find ways for them to shine. There's a song uh, that you wrote for Ronnie Dunn back in 2011. I think it was a moderate hit, but it's since gone on to be kind of a, a legendary country song. And I just think it's so fascinating. It's a we all bleed red, and. Yeah. At, at the time when the song came out in 2011, it addressed a divide in the country that sadly is still with us. And I'm just wondering where the impetus of that song came from, because I remember when it came out, it was relevant. It was like, oh, wow, this is great. Somebody's speaking to this because so much country music, especially is, you know, let's forget about our problems and have a beer down by the river or whatever. And um and this this wasn't yeah. I and I I thought and I still think it was a it was a pretty brave song and I think it was Ronnie's first single as a solo artist I'm not sure but it, it just, was yeah talk a little bit about the the genesis of that song yeah well I used to write quite a bit um, with Andrew Dorf um, Andrew passed away uh, sadly a few years ago but he was one of my best friends and incredible lyric guy. And uh, we actually we wrote, used to write like a couple times a week, and came into my writing office one day, and he he goes, "I have this title, Bleed Red. We all bleed red." Uh, I just like flipped out. I was like, "I love that, man!" And um, we just tried to write it like like an anthem a little bit, um, but understated, not preachy. Um, but there's some beautiful lyrics in that song, and. Uh, a lot of that's Andrew, but I am really proud of that song and also what it says. If we're fighting, we're both losing, we're just wasting our time. Because my scars, they are your scars, and your world is mine. You and I, we all bleed. I was kind of surprised um, 
that it, it was recorded and it was a single. Uh, you know, because I just wasn't sure, you know, if anybody would go for that um, concept. But uh, I loved it, and uh, I'm really proud of it. I still think that's, that's one of those songs that needs to be, like, revisited by a new artist and re-recorded again. It's still timely. Yeah, it very much is. I went back and listened to it, and it's like, wow, this this could have been released last year. Um, I don't want to make it yeah. sound like everything you write is melancholy. You've got some great positive songs, too. <laughs> um, I, I think one of the, the best, and it's just it's a cool description of how a guy feels about a woman, and, and she's my kind of rain from Tim McGraw. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, to me, I, she's my kind of rain is a, is a song I'm super proud of. Now, I can't take any credit on the lyric on that song. Um, but I, well, I wrote that song with a, with a lyricist from L.A. named Robin Lerner, who's a genius songwriter. And um, <laughs> we, you know, it's funny, like, you know, when you get in a room with somebody, you know, you, you kind of do it different ways. Um, and I kind of like try to do, you know, I feel my role of whatever my role is that day. But with Robin, I used to, uh, she used to bring, this will date us, but um, she used to bring a little cassette recorder into the writing room and just turn it on. And she'll go, she would go, I'd have my guitar and she'd go, make up something to sing. So <laughs> I would pretend like I was like la la uh, kind of like dummy lyrics. Um, and I would, I would structure it like, okay, here's the verse, here's the chorus, here's the verse. Here. You know, I would, I would play it like three minutes, but, you know, I would do a three minute song of just making it up off the top of my head. And, and, uh, you know, she would hit pause on the recorder and go, oh, that was really cool. Um, do another one. I go, oh, okay. <laughs> so, you know, and like, you know, maybe in like one day I do four or five for her. Um, and then she would go back to her hotel room. And like work on the lyrics, and the next day, she came back, um, and like showed me that whole lyric, and it was you know I mean pretty out there. There's some out there lyrics you know like that you would not hear in a country song. Right. Yeah. And uh, I was like, this is beautiful, but it you know it's pretty out there. And I said, I love it though. And so I it sang perfectly to my to my melody um, that I'd, I'd come up with that day, and. We went over and played it for a publisher at the time, and like she started crying, like right there, sitting in her seat, and just like you know, one of those songs that kind of trans transcended the the genre almost. It's like Tim McGraw was really brave for recording that song, but you know he was at the height of his his career at that time, and I, he had the power kind of to do whatever he wanted, I guess. She's my kind of rain, like love in a drunken sky. She's confetti falling down all night She sits quietly there Like water in a jar Says, baby, why are you trembling like you are? So I wait and I try I confess like a child
I think it speaks to who you are as a writer that you're able to write really, you know, big, commercially successful songs. Um, but then you also lyrically dive a little deeper and write things that maybe are a little more challenging. There's still hits like Bleed Red or My Kind of Rain. Even though you were the melody guy on that, it's still it's a it's a different song. And another one that stands out that doesn't seem like it would be a big commercial hit at first glance is Gary Allen's Life Ain't Always Beautiful. You're not afraid to take chances with some of these songs. Yeah, that you know, I wrote that with Cindy Thompson, the girl who wrote, yeah, uh, you know, uh, saying what I really meant to say. We were working actually on her second album that never that never came out, but we we were um, writing one day, and um, I guess we were. I can't honestly, I can't remember who had the title, but I wanted to write a song. Um, like that had kind of Dr. Zeus lyrics, like a life song that I was, I was thinking about the, uh, that book of the places you'll go. Mm-hmm. Cause I used to read that to my kids a lot. And so it's a cool little book about life, you know, uh, about the ups and downs too. And, um, and so, um, yeah, I, I just try to be really simplistic, but the the thing on that is the you know I I honestly did not think that that song would ever get recorded because it was slow, and um, the whole verse to set up and the chorus is all sad, and then at the end it goes like being always beautiful but it's a beautiful ride at the end, mm-hmm. and so it um you know it's it's a long setup to get there. And, you know, right at that point, you know, in country music, everything was really, it was hard to get slower songs cut. You know, it's always easy to get, uh, you know, publishers are always saying up-tempo positive. Uh, That never really worked for me. But I I remember, you know, I think uh, my co-writer, Cindy, I think she wanted a, a version of that song just so she could turn it into her publishers at Sony. And I went into a studio, and I think I was doing like five or six songs that day. And I just, at the end of my end of my studio time, I did a one take uh, piano vocal of that song. And her guy at Sony heard it, sent it to Mark Wright, who sent it to Gary Allen, and they're like, "This this is amazing. This is going to be the centerpiece of Gary's album." And uh, Gary had had some tragedy in his life yeah. that year, and it became all the more poignant um, because of that. And just the record is absolutely beautiful. And I'm so proud of that song. I've actually, I got, I got the best compliment uh, I've ever had on that song. My, my kids uh, at the time were going to Franklin high school outside of Nashville. And they went into the girl's bathroom one time and in graffiti, it said, life ain't always beautiful, but it's a beautiful ride. I was like, my lyrics got graffitied on the bathroom wall at Franklin High School. That's the best compliment I could ever have. <laughs> Life ain't always beautiful. Sometimes it's just plain hard. Life can knock you down. It can break your heart. Life ain't always beautiful You think you're on your way And it's just a dead-end road At the end of the day 
2017, you kind of put a little fun project together called the Wontons. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, I'll be honest, I couldn't find a lot on on, on on the internet from them. But there is, I, I did see a performance of you doing uh, one song acoustically. I think it was like a Good Morning Nashville show. But it was called Don't, yeah. Don't Shoot Me Down. And that I'm listening to that song, and it's like, that's another one where your lyrics are like super introspective um but also at the same time they're positive and and it's got kind of a like an almost like 80s kind of melody to it like new wave yeah. 80s don't shoot me down i just found a little blue sky hey now don't shoot me down i'm just a boy who's trying to fly trying to fly on Listen to this book. This could have been a hit for somebody. Like, how many songs do you have that could have been hits for other people? I just wonder sometimes, you know, if there's a big carpet in Nashville that if you pulled it up, there'd just be thousands of great songs that just unfortunately, for one reason or another, never saw the light of day. Oh, I'm sure there are, man. I'm sure there's everybody has them. But yeah, I, you know, the Wontons thing was like a fun project for me. Um, I wanted to kind of go back to my 80s kind of Tom Petty meets New Wave kind of Mm -hmm. pop rock reads. So it was just, it was a fun thing. But, you know, everybody has songs that they're like scratching their head. Like, I can't believe this didn't get cut. Man, I just had um, a song get cut after 16 years that was on, that I wrote with Taylor Swift that was on her last a remake of her Taylor Swift, um, of her Fearless record that she released a couple of months ago. Really? And it was a song that I wrote with her 16 years ago. And um, the crazy thing about that song is, this is my stupidity, but um, I remember writing with Taylor that day, and I, I remember her being just really sharp and smart. And like, I, I remember us writing a good song, and normally back then, after I wrote, you know, I didn't record stuff. I would just do like a, a work tape or whatever. And I would throw it into my garage band on my computer just to save it and, you know, label it. And, you know, maybe we demo it a month from now or whatever. Um, but for some reason, I never labeled it correctly. And I just didn't think about it. And then all of a sudden, Taylor comes out with like Tim McGraw and then other songs. And then, you know, all of a sudden, she's a huge star. And I didn't have her number, you know, um, <laughs> and 
And I thought about the song, and my my publisher at the time, Barbara Orbison, she's going, where is that song you wrote with Taylor? I'm like, I was like, I cannot find it. Like I had I had a Taylor Swift song, but I'd lost it. And so, like three years later, at the B, it was like the BMI Pop Awards in Los Angeles. I go up and say hi to Taylor, and she's like, Oh, hey! And she goes, Whatever happened to that song we wrote? I said I lost it, and she sang me the whole chorus, and she told me the title. And I went back that night to where I was staying. And I found the song, and I demoed it three years later. <laughs> what a great story. Oh, my God. Oh, gosh, yeah. Talk about a publisher that's not happy when, you know, she's getting Songwriter of the Year, and, like, you've lost the song you wrote with her. <laughs> hey, I knew I'd run into you some. It's been a while I didn't mean to stare I heard she's nothing like me I'm sure she'll make you happy But don't you, don't you smile time that you've taken man it's gone by fast um i don't want to take up much more of your time but i just i want to point out i get you know one of the things that i respect so much about you is you you had such a successful career and you've done stuff that's super commercial and not so commercial and you're still very much relevant whether it's you know a song from 16 years ago that's just seeing the light of day with one of the biggest artists in the world or a recent hit that you had uh just went to number one uh nobody but you i mean you're still you're still going strong. You're just as you're just as good as you ever was. Don't have to leave this town to see the world. Cause it's something that I gotta do. I don't wanna look back in 30 years and wonder who you married to. Wanna say it now, wanna make it clear. For only you and God to hear. When you love someone, they say you set them free. But that ain't gonna work for me And I, I feel like I'm still learning and I'm, I'm still loving it. You know, I mean, you know, some of my co-writers I write with are just, I mean, with nobody but you. I mean, I was in the room with Shane and Ross and Josh, and I don't even have to say their last names. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? <laughs> Those guys. So, I mean, I was, I was really a good day to be in that room. But, yeah, I respect all these guys so much. And, yeah, I'm having so much fun, man. It, it's uh, it's I have a lot of gratitude for the opportunities that I've had. 
it's been an amazing ride. <laughs> hey, man, Tommy Lee James, thank you so much for taking time today. Oh, thank you so much, man. I really enjoyed talking to you, Tom. It's it a treat. That's a wrap for this month's Write You a Song. Thank you again to Tommy Lee James for taking the time. Write You a Song is written and produced at the KNCI Radio Studios in Sacramento, California. And next month on Write You a Song, she's been in the game even longer than Tommy Lee James, and she, too, is still going strong. A 2008 Songwriter Hall of Fame inductee, she's written some country songs that have become nothing less than iconic. I'm getting tired of these Trace a bird next time on Write You a Song. The fields of-